Hey, before we begin the episode, I just wanted to say that we did have some technical difficulties throughout the first half of the podcast. As a matter of fact, I was actually using my uh, microphone backwards, and so that's why the audio quality from my end wasn't too great. Anyways, um, we did get those all sorted out. I know having these technical difficulties for the the first episode, the first actual episode, isn't the greatest thing, but hey, these things happen. Um, anyways, I'm gonna get on with the podcast, and I really hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Agios Podcast, a show where we talk theology, discuss philosophy, and chat about all things Catholic. My name's Chris Karoom, and I'm so glad that you're here today. Hey, today I am joined by Nolan Gleesman to talk about the sacraments. Uh, Nolan, you and I have been friends for two, three years now, right? Right. All right. <laughs> so uh, let's begin. Tell us a little about yourself, Nolan. Yeah, so I'm converting to the Catholic Church. I will probably be received into the church sometime this summer. I'm converting from Lutheranism. Uh, I was born a Lutheran. Um, So yeah, hopefully uh, sometime this summer I'll be able to be received into the church. It's been a long journey, uh, but I'm very excited to be finally welcomed back into the Church of Rome. Yeah. (laughs) It's been a while. It's been like three years, right? Right. Dang. All right, so let, let's get on with it. Today we're going to be talking about the sacraments, like I said. Uh, the first question I have for you, Nolan, is as a Lutheran, what were your original thoughts on the sacraments? So what were your you know thoughts on the Lutheran sacraments? Because I know they differ in some ways. And as you started looking more at Catholicism, what were your thoughts on those? Yeah, so Lutheranism does have the sacraments. Um officially there are only two or three sacraments those are usually the eucharist and baptism and sometimes um confession yes reconciliation uh however most lutheran churches don't really consider that uh as so it's usually just the two uh the eucharist and baptism um so that wasn't a big thing for me uh lutherans lutheranism in general holds to the idea of the sacramental union, uh, which teaches the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, So that wasn't a new concept for me, exactly. Uh, I wasn't um, shook by the concept, I guess. Uh, For baptism, I mean, it's the same baptism. I was validly baptized in a Lutheran church. Uh, Reconciliation, uh, as I said, that technically exists in the Lutheran Church, uh, but it's very different, um, and it's not nearly as personal as in the Catholic Church. Um, so you know, uh, it's the sacraments were never really a point of contention for me because they do have a presence. All right, well, yeah, that's great. Um, so I'm glad to see that there's some contingency between the sacraments of the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church. Um, we can go ahead and say that sacraments are a way in which God gives us his grace so that we have the ability uh, to resist temptation. God gives us his grace to have strength. We can resist temptation in this, you know, Satan-torn world where sin runs rampant. And as we progress in history, it just gets worse. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So described in the Lumen Gentium, we're going to go specifically into two sacraments today. Described in Lumen Gentium, which is a Vatican II document, as the source and summit of the Catholic life, 
the Eucharist is obviously a pretty big deal in the Catholic Church. So what is the Eucharist? Um, so Nolan, if you want to touch base on that, I know the Eucharist is uh, it's something you're really excited to receive once, you, once you're, you're received into the Catholic Church. So if you want to explain the Eucharist a little bit. Right. So the Eucharist is basically during Mass or Divine Liturgy, uh, upon the words of consecration, or maybe that's slightly different Divine Liturgy, I'm still not sure, uh, but at least in Mass, upon the words of consecration, um, the host that a priest has, that is the wine and the bread, the hosts, are transubstantiated into the actual literal body and blood of jesus christ you can't see it you can't smell it unless it's a miracle uh it'll taste and look and feel and crumble uh just like you know real bread real wine but the church teaches that it is actually the body and blood of jesus christ Again, if you looked at it on a microscopic level, you wouldn't see, you know, the red blood cells of our blessed Savior. But you would, when you are receiving the Eucharist, you are actually ingesting the actual body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, imagine if... We weren't so blessed to have it taste like a piece of bread and some wine, and we act. Oh gosh, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think having blood ingested every single Sunday is the best idea. But, <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, um. One way that's that it's been described, um, is the Eucharist is a. Here's a list. The Eucharist is a form of remembrance and sacrifice. It is a vehicle for transformation and grace, as well as being a communal meal. Let's start with remembrance. Um, we call we in the Catholic Church we have this word called anamnesis. It is um, during the Mass we are literally not figuratively, but we are literally brought back to the Last Supper and we are literally put to the foot of the cross on Calvary. And there, that is where in those two places, that is where Jesus offered up His body and His blood up to us in the Last Supper. That's where the words of institution or the words of consecration came from and then uh, on the cross it's where he physically you know gave up his life for us and so we are put in that position right in front of christ and so that's the word for anamnesis um and because every single mass we are put in that one point in history the eucharist and the mass is not a re-sacrifice it is never a re-sacrifice it is one sacrifice that uh, transcends above all time that we remember through the Mass, and that we receive truly through the Eucharist. Um, the Eucharist, it enables us to enter into the Lord's Passover by celebrating, calling, reenacting the past of our salvation, the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of our Savior. That is um, that is a quote from Michael Pennock. And so the second part of this, it, it's a transformation and grace. So... If you wanna, if you wanna explain, how is it a transformation and how is it a grace? So it's a grace in that you are, I. It's kind of difficult to miss that you are actually ingesting God 
I that's mind blowing. That's crazy. Um, I it's most incredible graces imaginable is being able to feel, touch, taste, eat God, actually actual God. You know, you have Eucharistic adoration. You can be in the same room with Jesus Christ, actually Jesus Christ. That's insane. Uh, that's an amazing grace. Um, and it's one of the most beautiful parts of the life of the church is being able to have physical contact with Jesus Christ, not just have him as an idea uh, in your in your head, uh, like a lot of people might, especially for those who don't necessarily have the opportunity to receive the sacraments, but really, you know, be with him. Uh, what was the other one besides grace? Transformation. Transformation. Uh, so how do, how do you mean that specifically? Just so basically, uh, like you said, the Eucharist is a way in which we physically encounter Christ. A lot of people would say, oh, the, the, the disciples and the apostles, they had it easy because Jesus was literally walking among them. But the thing is, he still walks among us today, spiritually, yes, but also through the sacrament, through priests who act in persona Christi. And so by receiving the Eucharist, we transform our souls to become more like Christ. We are called to be more like Christ. Um, and so we receive that grace and receive that transformation uh, through the graces bestowed upon us by this, what you could say, the ultimate sacrament. And, you know, referring back to what I said before, we, we get that strength to fight against temptation and to pursue Christ. Um, so St. Therese of Lisieux, says, uh, our Lord does not come down from heaven every day to lie in a golden ciborium. He comes to find another heaven, which is infinitely dear to him, the heaven of our souls, um, end quote. The ultimate goal and the, the reason for the Eucharist is for God to encounter us. Uh, he's not an exclusive being, but he makes himself known to us. Um, he makes himself intimate with us through the Eucharist. Um, we thanks be to God we live in the United States where you know freedom of religion and we have access to the Eucharist every single day if we need it and so we have that ability to receive him and the more we receive him the more graces we get from from him uh, you know I, I can't think of a better way in which we encounter Christ did you want to add anything no I think you really <laughs> yeah so the final part to the list I said at the beginning was it is a communal meal. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Because the loaf of bread is one, we, though many, are one body. We all partake of the one loaf. Um, end quote. So, yeah, that, that's where the communal meal kind of comes in. It's, you know, the Eucharist is... Is, is, is the way that the Christian and the Catholic Church comes together, communal, right. communion. I mean, they're from the same yes, root. In the word. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, like I said, it's a remembrance and a sacrifice. It is not a re-sacrifice. It is a way that we remember Christ. It is truly the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. It is not a simple in of itself. It helps us to change ourselves, to follow Christ, 
and to resist temptation, and it is a way in which all Catholics come together to worship the same God. Um, so St. Augustine says, a quote, If you, therefore, are Christ's body and members, it is your own mystery that is placed on the Lord's table. It is your own mystery that you are receiving. You are saying amen to what you are. Your response is a personal signature affirming your faith, end quote. So um, I, I sat a little bit kind of trying to decipher what St. Augustine was saying and him being St. Augustine, always paired with St. Aquinas. Um, he's dense. So what do you think this means? Let's split up into two parts. The first part is what is our mystery that is being put on the table? So I wasn't able to find a lot about this quote, to be completely honest. So the Eucharist, it makes us more like Christ right? What is the Eucharist? It's the body of Christ. Who? Are, what are we called to be through the Eucharist? A community of Catholics that worship Christ. Um, a communion. We become the body of Christ. The church is often also referred to as the body of Christ. And so what is being put on that table is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We share in that mystery. Um, and like I said again before, the Eucharist is a very intimate sacrament. It is the, one of the most intimate ways that we can encounter Christ. It's one of the only physical ways that we encounter Christ. And so we share very deeply and personally in that sacrament. And so when the, the bread and the wine are consecrated on there, we all join in on the prayer. A priest is not an exclusive, you know, it's not like a pagan priest where he's the only one who can talk to God, but he's the one that stands in the person of Christ and also stands in the person of the congregation pleading to Christ on our behalf, consecrating the bread and the wine to become the Eucharist. And so that is what I believe he's, he's trying to say by, you know, it is your own mystery that you are receiving. And uh, if, did you want to add anything to that? Um, well, my, uh, interpretation and this is by no means you know very well thought out came up with it in the time that you were talking about that <laughs> but i might propose uh that he um was referring to the fact that when you're receiving the eucharist you are bringing yourself into union with christ in a way and so uh by that act it's kind of you know, you could say it's your own mystery. One of the other words for sacrament is a mystery. And so you could say that it's your own sacrament. Obviously, it's not your flesh and blood. Uh, it's Christ's, but you were brought into a special union with Christ when you receive the Eucharist. Um, so uh, I might be able to interpret that as being, you know, it's kind of, in a sense, your own sacrament. Uh, by um, you receiving and being brought into union with Christ. But again, yeah. very not, I didn't have very much time to uh, flesh no, yeah, that. You're good. Um, but yeah, as a matter of fact, you are right um, about the word for mystery. In the Byzantine Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches, they're not called sacraments. They're called mysteries because that is what we are, or that is what they are. We don't know how a piece of bread can become flesh we don't know how a priest can or in what in what means technically technically 
that God forgives. We know it is through the priest. We know that it's through reconciliation, but we don't know exactly how that works. They're all they're all mysteries. They're all so right. we call them, yeah, divine liturgy. We don't call it mass. It's like, like the mystery how are of the we brought Eucharist. into the church just by having water. Exactly. Or, or in the Eastern style, absolutely dunked in a tub <laughs> uh, of holy water. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Um, those, those baptisms are brutal. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, so <laughs> so the second part of this quote, what, it, what part of our own faith are we affirming? And if we are told to believe what we say through our amen, that being our signature, then what is it are we believing? In essence, what is transubstantiation? Um, so like what the actual like mechanic of transubstantiation is, what's happening? Um, about in terms how, that humans can understand. <laughs> right. Like how the body and blood becomes, or sorry, how the bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Obviously, we can't mm-hmm. know how that happens again mystery sacrament that kind of thing um but yeah i mean it's how i was talking about before um it's actually literally the body and blood of jesus christ if you were to hold the sacrament in your hands uh then you would actually be holding that flesh in your hand if it was on your tongue to actually be on your tongue um and it's fully, uh, the Catholic Church teaches that it's fully that. There isn't bread and wine there. It just uh, looks like bread and wine. It gives off the appearance, taste, touch, feel, etc., etc. Uh, the Lutheran Church, again, back to uh, my background, as I said, believes in the sacramental union, uh, which is similar to something called consubstantiation. Uh, which is actually rejected by most Lutherans. Um, But essentially, the idea is that the body and blood of Jesus Christ exists in, around, under, and with that bread and wine, but that bread and wine is also present. So it's very similar. Um, But they believe that, you know, the body and blood actually is there, but so is the bread and wine. Again, though, that's not what the church teaches, the actual Catholic church teaches. It's that it's fully the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. that that's a really good piece of information. Um, of course. I know I still have trouble. Every single Catholic has trouble wrapping their head around it because that's not how our brains work. Um, and also the difference between consubstantiation and transubstantiation goes down to the roots. I just noticed um, trans meaning, you know, transformate, trans, transform, changed, con means with um, right. so yeah it's it's the it's the body of blood soul and divinity with the bread and the wine or in the catholic church it is the body blood soul and divinity period nothing else um so yeah uh so there is there is one chapter in the bible that catholics have used again and again to prove transubstantiation john chapter 6 verse 53 Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. And he goes on to say in John chapter 6, 55 to 56, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. And so many Protestants will take this and they will say, it is simply a symbol. Whoever accepts Christ will enter into heaven. Whoever, whoever rejects him will not. But here's, here's the difference between this and a bunch of other parts of the Bible. So there are multiple instances all throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus says something that is not meant to be taken literally. And when someone does question him, he clarifies. But that does not happen in this chapter. So let here are some instances. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, about being born again in chapter 3, verse verses 1 to 14, in the same book of John, these are all in John, um, Nicodemus is like, how, how can I just crawl back into the womb and be born again? That's not how that works. And Jesus is like, no, stupid, be born of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in chapter 4, 13 to 28, Jesus is speaking with the Samaritan woman. Uh, and he mentions the waters of eternal life. And she's like, how can I receive the waters of eternal life? Um, and then we progress. And we see that the waters of eternal life are are found in Jesus Christ. They're not actual waters. And we see that when she leaves her water jug on, on the ground and runs back. Because now we know, and she knows, it's not actual water. Um, and in that same story, when the disciples come back in verses 31 to 34 of chapter 4, uh, they give him some food and he and Jesus is like, I already ate. I'm fine. And they're like, wait a minute. Did someone give him something to eat? And he's like, no, my food is to do the father's will. Um, and one of the most explicit instances of this is in John chapter two, verses 19 to 22. I'll read, I'll read the, the, the verse itself because it's easier to understand than me explaining it. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. End quote. So, you know, this is where he's like, I'm going to destroy the temple. The temple he was talking about is his body, because after three days after being dead, he, guess what? Spoiler alert. He rose from the dead. All right, so starting over here, we actually had some technical difficulties. We got them all cleared up, and turns out I was using my microphone backwards. So if there's any change in my audio, that's why. Anyways, <laughs> uh, so so uh, Jesus was talking about destroying the temple. He meant his body. And we see all these times throughout the Gospel of John where he says something, and then he clears himself up saying, no, this was a figure of speech. But in John chapter 6... He, he doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, people are saying, how can anyone believe this? This is a crazy concept. People are leaving. Most of his disciples left at this time, but he never withdrew from that, from his, from this concept of, hey, this is actually my body and my blood. He just kept persisting. Uh, he said it once and he said it again. Um, and so, so that's, that's the true presence. Uh, in the Council of Trent, they state, the body and the blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. Um, so that's, that's transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, according to Michael Pennock, is the conse uh, consecration of the mass, the reality, the substance of the bread and wine when they change into the reality of Jesus, his risen 
glorified body and blood. There's everywhere in the Catholic Church and in the Bible, everywhere it says, hey, this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. He is truly present there. There is there is no no doubt about it. And so that's that's where our concept of the Eucharist comes from, the idea of transubstantiation as well. It's not a new belief. The Council of Trent, like I said, it, it was there. And so how do you get around thinking about the transubstantiation? We said it wasn't consubstantiation. It's transubstantiation where there is no there is no bread, there is no wine. It is body, blood entirely. Uh, Nolan, if you want to explain, uh, you said a little bit about this, but is are there any methods that you kind of use, any imagery that you think of when you think about the Eucharist and tr- a transubstantiation? I mean, I generally, because, you know, there's no bread or blood left, it is just the body and blood of God. If I ever have that image in my mind and I'm really trying to, I guess, put myself in the mindset of like um, emotionally uh, comprehending the gravity of what happens during the Mass, then I might imagine the Eucharist not as the bread and, or yeah, as the bread and wine, but like if I imagine it in the chalice, I'll imagine blood in the chalice. Um, I'll imagine, you know, actually, I'm not sure what flesh would necessarily look like as the bread, but you could imagine a heart, I guess. I feel like that's good. Um, yeah, and like Eucharistic yeah. miracles, it's usually a piece of the heart. Um, mm-hmm. so that makes yeah. sense. Um, that's often what I think about um, Eucharistic miracles. Like, we do know what it looks like. And oftentimes, it is it is muscle from the heart which, you know, Sacred Heart of Jesus, it's, I think it's very poetic of Jesus to use his heart muscle <laughs> as, his, as his flesh. Right. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, that that's, yeah, thank you for sharing. And oftentimes, whenever I'm receiving the Eucharist, I'm always receiving on the tongue whenever I can. And so when, when I receive on the tongue, I usually look up and before me is the is the crucifix. And so I think about me standing right in front of Calvary. So having that imagery of Christ standing before you, um, because again, the priest acts in persona Christi. So Christ is literally standing before you through the priest and in the Eucharist. Um, so that, that is one imagery that I use as well as Eucharistic miracles. Um, right. Yeah. And so I, I said this verse before, and I'll say it again. John chapter 6, verse 53. Uh, it Jesus said to them, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Jesus, right here, is explaining, like you said, Nolan, the gravity of the situation going on here. He says that the Eucharist is absolutely necessary for salvation. You do not have life within you. You are dead. Um, If you want to go to heaven, you must receive the Eucharist. It is the source and the summit, according to the Lumen Gentium, of our Catholic life. Extremely important. Um, and in first Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, Paul says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. And so this is kind of, kind of segue into our second, uh, sacrament that we're going to talk about, which is reconciliation. Why is it so important that we receive the Eucharist worthily or in a state of grace? Why? Why is that so important? Well, 
when we are receiving the Eucharist, we're physically taking it into our body. So our body kind of serves like a vessel, kind of like how we don't want to use subpar material uh, in the um, casting of chalices. We want to use uh, rare metals like gold, things like that. And so just as uh, we want to use the highest materials when creating a chalice, uh, the which will hold the blood of God, we want to make sure that our own bodies, which will um, be a vessel for you know, the Eucharist, we want to make sure that our own bodies are worthy of receiving that. Our own spirits, our own beings are as sanctified as we can be, um, or at the very least, we are not uh, permeated with deadly sin when we receive this, because uh, that would, when, if we were to receive the Eucharist in a state of deadly sin, that would hurt our relationship with God, um, and it would also be a major disrespect towards the Eucharist by offering up a subpar vessel. That is, that is great. That I, I couldn't have explained it better. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so what kind of things make us unworthy? What makes us, you know, not an adequate vessel to hold, to hold the Eucharist? Because technically we're all unworthy uh, no matter what, because we're humans. We have we have sin always on us. Um, so our soul has to be cleansed. And so, what what kind of let, let's begin with what kind of things stain our soul? So obviously, the things that stain our soul are sin. Um, but as I mentioned, you can have sin on you and still receive the Eucharist. It's deadly sin that you cannot have on you and go and receive the Eucharist. So, for example, as a Lutheran uh, who has not been received fully into the church yet, I have never had a confession. And not I yet, deeply, but hopefully soon. Not yet. <laughs> yes, hopefully sometime in the very near future I will. Uh, but I am, until then, I am deeply permeated with the deadly sins, the numerous deadly sins that I have committed throughout my life. I am living in a state of deadly sin, so I cannot receive the Eucharist. And why that's so bad is because, as the Catholic Church, or at least uh, the Western half of the Catholic Church, makes that distinction between venial and um, deadly slash mortal sins. And so uh, a venial sin, like lying, for example, uh, will add to your unworthiness to serve as a vessel for the Eucharist, uh, but it won't make you unworthy enough. Well, mm, let me rephrase that. It will, I don't know a good way to phrase that, but you, you no, get you're good. Right. Yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. Uh, whereas um, a deadly sin will make that, uh, it'll take that to the point where um, it will be too damaging to your relationship with God. Mm -hmm. um so yeah yeah um so you you said this before this was the next question i was going to ask which is how do we become worthy again and like you said that is through reconciliation 
that is where we uh, go to the priest, confess our sins. We must feel bad about ourselves because, hey, our our relationship with God is damaged. And once he says those uh, those words of absolution, through Christ, we are forgiven of our sins, and then we are our our soul is cleansed. We're going to talk about cleansing of the soul uh, in a couple minutes, but. Our soul is cleansed, and we are able to receive the Eucharist again. Nolan, you made a distinction between venial and mortal sins. Mortal sins are the sins that kind of completely sever our relationship with God, while venial sins are the ones that damage it. Eucharist, in of itself, is a form of absolution, only for the venial sins, where um, through our reception of Christ, in our encounter with Christ, we kind of make up for our sins— and that relationship is um, forged new. But when we completely get rid of it, we have no connection with Christ anymore. And so therefore, we need to go to confession so we can completely rebuild the bridge between our relationship with us and God. Of course, if you're in a state of mortal sin, don't be like, oh, now I can't pray. I, I used to do that. And my priest is like, um, not a good idea. I mean, if you're in a state of mortal sin, I think the first thing you want to do is pray and say, right. hey, God. I, I I have a boo-boo. <laughs> right. So now what are the biblical roots for confession? First of all, John chapter 20, 22 to 23, quote, When he had said this, he breathed onto them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. End quote. So that's, he's like, so we believe the disciples are the first bishops of the Catholic Church. And the bishops then appointed presbyters. Those are the priests. And so with that, they all have the authority from Christ himself to forgive sins. Uh, in Matthew 18, verse 18, Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. End quote. Same concept over here. So I was doing research for this podcast, and one quote that I came across by uh, on in in the Bible is second. I love this one. Second Corinthians chapter five verse eighteen. Paul writes, "And all this is from God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to." Uh, and trusting us the message of reconciliation right right there that's where the sacrament appears in uh in the bible straight up it, it's right there which i i love the um the clarity of that verse um so it's the confessor's role in in the church to represent christ and announce the words of absolution on behalf of the church um the confessor being the priest or the bishop um so that, that's their job. They're not there to say, hey, your boo-boo is a bit too big, too bad. No, th they're there to tell you, if you're truly sorry, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, so, yeah. Nolan, I, I love talking about this with you. What are you looking forward to the most upon making your first confession? The joy of knowing uh, that all the sins I've committed in my 16 years of life will be washed away. That I will never have to worry about getting in a car crash and then dying in a state of severe, deadly sin. 
um, and just having the joy of finally being reconciled with God on a level that I've never experienced in my life before. Um, just being able to strengthen my relationship with Jesus Christ in a way, as I said, that I've never been able to experience before. Yeah. Uh, I honestly, I can't wait for that. It's going to be great. Um, so what, what do you believe is the purpose of confession? And so what does, what does it accomplish? We, we talked a lot about this, but something that many people don't actually know is that confession isn't necessarily a fast pass to heaven. It partially takes away some of the temporal punishment due to sin, which is uh, the punishment in purgatory. And it totally remits the eternal punishment, that being hell, that results from sin. So it, in a way, it, it confirms your entrance into heaven, but it doesn't get rid of the punishments from your sins. And for that, you need uh, indulgences and um, fasting and you know self-denial. Th- those things, those will help limit the time that you spend in purgatory. So many Protestants, they will criticize Catholics because they, th- they think we believe that we can sin all we want and just go to confession for everything to be a-okay. So obviously here we see that's not the case. Confession doesn't say, okay, by now you can go to heaven. Um, we still have sins on our souls. And I, I remember one person was talking about it as a, um, so if your soul is a white shirt and sins are stains, um, confession, it will clean the shirt, but it won't completely remove the stain. For that, you need bleach, which is, you know, indulgence and complete absolution, um, from different sacraments like the anointing of the uh, anointing of the sick so you know that that's a misconception that is found in the sacrament of reconciliation but some other things is it forgives sin like i said it restores our relationship with god it reconciles us with the church and others and it gives grace to us to help to avoid sinning again Uh, obviously we talked about forgiving sin, but how does it restore our relationship with God? Again, something else we touched base on, but it, it's a way for us to sincerely apologize to God for the sins we've committed against him, right? And um, I, I remember uh, there's a story that I heard that I, I really loved. Um, so there, there was a little girl who was in church with her mother, and it, it, there was like scheduled confession so people were in a line and every single time someone would come out of the confessional the little girl would clap and so people are like to the mother why is she clapping and so the mother's like oh i just told my daughter that every single time someone goes to confession they say sorry and they make uh they make up with jesus and they're friends again and i i just it's a very cute story because it's true um we we've severed our relationship with christ and through confession we're friends again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, the, th- uh, the third one is it reconciles us with the church and the others. Nolan, do you want, do you want to talk about how it kind of, you know, pushes back, uh, pushes us back into the church. We're back in union with the church uh, and it reconciles us with other people who we may have, you know, trespassed against. Right. So as to like with God and the church, they never leave you. He's the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. 
he will never abandon you. Um, he'll always be at your side. However, he also gives you the free will to choose whether uh, you want to remain at his side. Uh, so you, by your sins, move away from God. You uh, weaken, you crack, you uh, break your relationship with God. And so with reconciliation, really, it's not so much that God, you know, held a grudge against you. And so now he's going to, um, you know, he's in the other room. He has his door locked. It's more the other <laughs> way around. Uh, it's you repairing your own relationship with God and you moving back towards him. Um, as for our relationship with others, sin, you know, it permeates our whole life. It, even if it doesn't outwardly seem like it, sin, even the smallest sin, the sin that we think doesn't hurt anybody else, will still ultimately hurt the people around you, the people in your community, uh, whoever is in, who may be involved with that sin. And so it hurts the wider church, uh, the wider humanity. And so by doing, by going through the sacrament of reconciliation, you are, just as you're repairing your relationship with God and the church, you are repairing your relationship with the people around you. Yeah, very eloquently said. <laughs> Thank you. Um so the final thing, it gives us grace to, uh, it gives us the grace and helps us to avoid sinning again. So I, after I um, started taking my faith a little bit more seriously, uh, I started going to weekly confession. And so through that, it has, it has helped me master and overcome a lot of temptation. And I, I've seen it as sort of a training of the soul in a sense. Um, so if if you if you want to get better at something, you you want to keep practicing at it, and so if you want to get better at avoiding temptation, and um, you know, and staying close to Christ, you want to visit the sacraments frequently, and so the uh, the the sacrament of reconciliation is the best way to remain close to Christ because it it uh, keeps our relationship as close as possible every single time. So. That and the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the physical presence and an intimate relationship between God and his people, and reconciliation is the way in which we we enter into that presence. So, you know, why why did we choose these two sacraments specifically? Because uh, I think they, I personally believe that they are the most important sacraments for Catholics. Uh, Nolan, I'm going to have you give your opinion over the matter first. So what's your perspective on the importance of the Eucharist and reconciliation as compared to the other sacraments? And then I'll jump in and give my perspective. Um, well, I mean, the Eucharist is probably, at least in my opinion, uh, the most beautiful uh, sacrament. As you said, uh, with uh, as it says in Lumen Gentium, it's the peak and summit of our Catholic life. Truly, yeah. Um, again, I... I don't think that you can say it too many times. I don't think it can be understated how important it is that God is actually present in the Eucharist, that Jesus Christ is actually there. So receiving that is even 
if it may seem kind of almost mundane, just like a Sunday thing for some people, or maybe a seven-day thing for others, even if it just seems like you're just ingesting a piece of bread and blood, or sorry, bread and wine, it probably is, it definitely is the most important thing that you can do, uh, at least as far as the sacramental life of the church goes. And so then reconciliation in its regard to the Eucharist is important by proxy because it allows you to more fully participate in that uh, relationship, that union of sorts that you uh, create when you receive the Eucharist. Um, But it's also important in other regards because you are being forgiven of your sin. It's a sure way, the way that you know that you are being forgiven of the sins that you've committed against God and your neighbor. Um, As for the most important, like which sacraments are the most important, uh, I would agree that those are the two most important sacraments. Uh, However, I wouldn't, obviously, the Eucharist is the most important sacrament, again, as it's said in Lumen Gentium. Um, But I would also just add that baptism is also extremely important because it's your entering into the life of the church in the first place. Yeah, for for sure. Um, And you kind of, you kind of hit the the hammer on the nail. Um, So like I said, it's, so the Eucharist and reconciliation are a, are one of the sacraments that we can repetitively receive um, nonstop throughout our entire life. It's not like uh, baptism, confirmation, holy orders where it leaves an indelible mark on you um sure that that mark stays for you your entire life but it's not something that you're um you're uh kind of experiencing regularly rather than perpetually right um yeah and so i i mentioned this in our talk about reconciliation it's it's like a training of the soul you have to keep close to christ to remain with christ um the eucharist like it said it's a source and summit and reconciliation is a means to intimate relationship with christ on the altar oops you you literally hit everything so um that is all i have for uh the sacraments of reconciliation and uh and the eucharist um so before we leave today uh i'm gonna have you guys and nolan i'm gonna have you uh, join me in prayer we're gonna we're gonna say a traditional byzantine prayer before we end uh, the podcast today So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory to you, O Lord, glory to you. O heavenly King, consoler, the spirit of truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessing and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. Holy God, holy mighty one, holy immortal one, have mercy on us. Agios Otheos, Agios Eskiros, Agios Othanatos, Eleisonimas. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and always, and forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O most holy Trinity, have mercy on us. O Lord, forgive us our sins. O Master, pardon our transgression. Holy One, look upon us and heal our infirmities for your namesake. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. 
Lord, have mercy. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and always, and forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Thank you, Nolan, for having this very long conversation with me, although we did experience uh, some technical difficulties halfway through. Um, hopefully we'll have some more conversations on the sacraments in the future. But until then, God bless. Thank you.